Great. Thanks again, guys. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to uh, back to Hiawatha for most of you, and if it's your first Sunday here, uh, as uh, I think Spence said, we're really glad you guys are with us today uh, for our service. And now for um, the second installment of our three-week uh, series in the book of Jude, the New Testament letter uh, or book of Jude, a letter to the first century church, kind of on a broad level. Uh, if you know a little bit about the New Testament letters, uh, you might know that they're written to geographic-specific situations like cities. A lot of Paul's letters are anyway, the Apostle Paul's. Uh, this is more of a broad letter. Uh, and we, uh, it's, it's a great little book. It is, um, and I'll just say right off the bat, it is uh, kind of last week. It's a heavy book. Uh, there are, um, kind of like the Psalms at different styles sometimes in the Old Testament, there are imprecatory Psalms and sort of these almost cursing Psalms and darkness Psalms, ones that are really, the writer's under a lot of oppression and weight, and then there are praise ones and, and uh, coronation Psalms and uh, things like that too. It's kind of like that with letters, where you've got uh, letters like Philippians, are a little bit more joy-centered, and things are great, and let's just celebrate and rejoice and, and all of that. And then you've got letters like this that are just a bit heavier. Uh, they're harder to listen to. They come with more admonishment and challenge. And uh, so I love that diversity in the Bible. Uh, it's, it is, uh, God is amazing, and he's um, impossible to fully understand, but he's complex, and he reveals himself in a lot of ways. This is one of those ways, I think, you know, where it just we get uh, different sides of um, kind of his character and uh, what it means to be saved and what it means to persevere in the faith and uh, in this case to be warned about losing that, uh, losing that, that gospel, that gospel of grace that we as Christians start out with uh, but not all finish with. And so, so last week we uh, started looking at the book in the first four verses and like a lot of times when you're in letters like this in the New Testament you look for occasion because a lot of times the authors say just flat out this is what the book's about, this is what the letter's about. I'm writing to you for this reason. And uh, not all the time, uh, sometimes it's more veiled, but this is one of the, one of the letters where you get uh, a clear occasion. And the occasion is, uh, again, pulling from last week, he's writing to address false teaching inside the church. So and we'll look at this even, even today. These people have gotten in the church who are kind of a different way, not through the door of Christ, but kind of a different way. They, they've identified as Christians. They call themselves Christians. They even have been teachers uh, and shepherd types in, in, in the church, but they're not. And they seek to harm the church uh, with false doctrine or otherwise. Um, and Jude is writing to expose this. So he's writing again to a broader, uh, not a specific situation of it happening, but hearing that kind of broadly there's been some threats to the church, maybe around Jerusalem, the, the Jewish church of the first century, but beyond as well. And he writes to address that. But not just that, he also writes, I think, on a kind of more of a personal, wherever we are spiritually level, as Christians, he writes to address apostasy, which if you don't know what that is, that it comes from a Greek word meaning falling away. So apostates or apostasy is, it addresses uh, Christians who kind of taste salvation, but then fall away from it. They don't finish the, the race. So have that in mind as we read the book. On one level, he's saying Christians be aware that there's false teaching out there. That kind of sounds Jesus-y, but it's half-truths at best, and it's not true. Be aware of it that there's twistings of grace. Last week we looked at that phrase, pervertings of grace happening, and be aware of that. But, but also look uh, right here as well. Look that it's probably, there might be some inclinations towards it. Uh, none of us have perfect theology anyway, so there's that. But there might be some inclinations towards things that just aren't true about Jesus or the gospel that we need to hold up Jude then and look at, look at as though it's more of a mirror and say, where's my heart currently with, with the gospel, with, with uh, the core tenets of the faith? Who is really Jesus to me right now? 
It's always a great question to ask. Whatever you're hearing from, like a sermon or any book you're reading yourself, who is the Christ? You know, Jesus asks Peter that, right, and his disciples. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It's, it's the greatest question of all, and it dictates everything about where we are with the Lord. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And so a lot of the book then is about exposing false versions of that and then kind of contrasting, of course, by implication, what are the true versions of that, but um, what, what is the gospel? That's, the, that's what it means to contend for the faith, remember, from last week. What is the gospel? What is not the gospel? Who is Jesus? Who is not the Christ? And uh, it's, not, it's best not to overcomplicate that. All Christians do it on some level. So, so what is the book of warnings then to the church? As the biblical metaphor goes, Christians are like, are like sheep, false teachers who seek to harm with false doctrine and otherwise are like wolves who want to devour the sheep. Pastors are like shepherds, and Christ is the ultimate chief shepherd who tends to his flock, uh, but uh, pastors are like under-shepherds, we call them, or overseers, or elders of a church are like shepherds who fight the wolves, raise awareness to their presence, and teach counter-gospels to theirs. And so we, we wanted to start, on behalf of the rest of the overseers here, I'm one of them at the church, but just start by Mentioning that to you guys in the context of talking about false teaching, a lot of you guys probably have different backgrounds to that or experiences uh, with it in past churches or just personally. Um, wanted to address that, that you know, we, this is how we view church polity or governance in terms of what a pastor's job is. Part of the job, if you think, okay, they're, they're to be a shepherd, part of that job is, is to protect. That's what shepherds do for sheep. They protect from uh, outside attack. Uh, in this case, uh, stick with the metaphor, wolves. And so we, we talk about being pastors at church. We think this is our job. It's part of our calling is to protect you guys and ourselves, uh, kind of amongst the team as well. We protect ourselves from this because we're also the sheep, in, in a sense, before Christ. Um, but it's part of our calling, and, um, and we love you guys. We, we didn't, you know, we weren't, we weren't, our arm wasn't twisted into doing this as a church. We love the church. We love Christ. We love the gospel. We love this church. And um, when things threaten the church doctrinally, uh, it gives us a righteous anger. We don't like that. It bothers us. It, it keeps us up at night. And, we, and, this, and it, it looks like preaching a certain way, but it's more than that, of course. It could be personal. But we love you guys too much to allow you and then us as well, again, amongst the team, to uh, diverge and to, uh, to be devoured by wolves, essentially, but to diverge onto bad theologies that are untrue and harmful. Because bad theology does hurt people. It was a mantra of sorts my old pastor used to give me, give me and he's right. Bad theology is harmful. It's not just this, oh, it's wrong. It actually hurts. It hurts people on multiple levels. And so, so part of what, what it looks like then to feed uh, and to protect and guide is good, sound, biblical teaching about Christ and, and his grace. Um, but with that aside, uh, today's plan then is to preach the main section of the book, which is a list of, uh, it's verses 5 to 16, Again, it's a short book, one chapter, so uh, just verses. If you're looking for a chapter mark, it's not there. There's no chapter one, it's just it's a chapter. Verses 5 to 16. Uh, it's a list, basically, just to summarize it, because it's a hard section to understand, so at least you've got this going into it. It's a list of examples of people who did not stay in the faith. Even angels who fell. So angels come into this as well, which is interesting. They started angels and, and then Christians who kind of were Christians but not really, but started but not finished. They started but didn't finish the race. Or they ended up choosing evil over good or sin over grace after starting with grace. And so he cites all these stories in kind of a rapid-fire way uh, to encourage the church not to be like them as if they were examples 
uh, negative examples to not, to not follow. So the encouragement is, the admonishment is, start and finish in the faith. Continue in God's salvation. Uh, the Apostle Paul uses more phrases like, walk and be strong in grace, but continue to run the race, he says, of, of the faith. And so this is Jude's version of that. Remain in the faith. Don't pervert or change the grace of God, which is the good news that Jesus died for our sins. Don't change that or add to it or subtract from it. Receive it as God's, God gives it. And don't grow weary or tired or bored of it, which is common too sometimes for, uh, for all of us. At some points in our journey, but for some, it happens so much it's that they go so far there that they actually leave the faith. God's grace is enough. His grace is beautiful. His grace is powerful. But to those who don't remain in it and who reject it, it's a warning of fiery judgment and eternal death. That's, that's the middle section of Jude right there for you in a paragraph. So a lot of warnings, again, for the heart of the Christian, but also outside of us to just have the, have the right antennas up for, uh, for false teaching and for harmful individuals. So try to get the big picture then. Uh, it is, don't get stuck in the details because there will be things here that might just, uh, there are difficult texts, and this is in the New Testament, in the Bible. This is certainly one of them, parts of this anyway. Uh, try to just get the big picture of, of what's, what's happening and uh, not get stuck in the minutia. But with that said, we'll talk about the minutia <laughs> now. So uh, Jude 5 to 16, if you want to follow along on screen, that'd be great. Um, and uh, then we'll come back and, and talk about it. Verse 5, now I want you to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. For when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment that said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. They are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees and laid on them, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment on all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. All right, so good. A lot of truth here. It's also one of those things you think, man, I don't know if Jude's a guy I'd want to hang out with for a beer or anything, but um, he, uh, <laughs> it's a lot of tough stuff there, right? But um, let's go back, and what I want to do is, is uh, 
talk about this from two, two different angles. One, we're going to look at just kind of the, some of the sins, the main ones that are talked about, and descriptions of false converts or uh, wolves or false teachers or people that twist grace. And so whatever you want to think about there, they all kind of are similar. But um, descriptions or a list of sins, we'll talk about some of them and then move on to this more, this more pronounced idea of, uh, and I think this is the main theme of the section, is a list of, as I said before, non-finishers in the faith. So people that started but didn't finish. In fact, one of the biggest warnings you get in the New Testament to Christians is to those of you who have started, praise God, that's a gift, but be sure you finish. You don't stop, you don't stop believing. You don't stop clinging to the grace that you clung to from day one. Uh, don't let go. And, and so that's Jude kind of picks up with the greater chorus of that in the New Testament and gives his, his fresh approach to it. So. so let's start with list of sins here. Um, and again, descriptions. So either it's sins or more descriptions. Uh, it's kind of a complicated, nuanced list. So a false converts, wolves, false teachers, and uh, grace, twist, grace twisters. The first is, and probably the biggest one that I'll, you'll see kind of spread through this whole sermon, is unbelief. Uh, remember that unbelief is a sin. It's not a neutral place that God waits for us to climb out of, uh, which is um, kind of bad news, but also really good news. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, if, if we understand ourselves to be kind of in this morally neutral place of unbelief, you know, the, the idea is that God, in order to give us kind of free choice, waits for us to climb out ourselves and, and rather fully, and, and, and either truly, truly reject or truly receive. But here and many other places in the Bible, unbelief is called a sin. It's distrust, right, in God. It's saying, I don't need you. I don't believe you either are there, period, uh, or it's I trust more in myself to save or other things, other philosophies or good works um, to, to save. And so unbelief is something that, and this is the good side of it, that Jesus died for. We've got we to understand that. And this is good, good news for if you're not a Christian today and you're here or if you're a believer who at any time wrestles with doubt or disbelief, which is all of us in the room, should be. Uh, it's me. Uh, and that is, go to Jesus with it. If he bled for it, he will provide a way out from it. Uh, if he died for it, he will give you the gift of the opposite of it, which is belief. He, he is the giver of salvation, right? Uh, it's not just all other sins except this one, you know? His blood actually, this, this is the good news of it too, is, you know, we think sometimes that when we become Christians, we, you know, we open an invitation to Jesus that he then accepts and says, oh, well, thank you, and kind of walks into our heart. You know, it's, it's really not that way. I mean, that's actually not as good of news as saying the good news of the gospel is that Jesus invades our heart when we weren't even looking for him. He breaks in, you know, and says, here I am. You know, when, like Romans 3 says, we weren't believing in him or looking for him or seeking him in any way, and yet people are still saved. How do you reconcile that? You know, when they make this all-inclusive statements about no one seeks for God, and yet so many people are saved from their sins and actually do seek him then. How do you understand that? You know, the answer is God dies for unbelief. He's stronger than it. He overcomes it. He breaks in. So, you know, it, it, it's fine to understand our conversion is, yeah, we, we invited Christ into our life. We believe the gospel. But behind the curtain of that is God invading our heart to make us want that at all in the first place. So be humble in that. If you're a believer, God desired it, and you are because he wanted it. And, but also be very encouraged in that. Uh, God wants you to be saved uh, more than you do. He wants your salvation more than you want it. 
you know, you've got to bank on that in the throes of doubt, right? In the throes of sin and addiction. He wants you to be in the, his fold. He wants you in his kingdom. He wants to destroy your sin and forgive it and vanquish it and erase it. And part of that is overcoming um, our unbelief. And so, but anyway, a little bit of a digression there. But unbelief is a description then of one of the sins of these types where it's not just a wrestling with doubt or a little bit of unbelief. It's a full going that way where they've fully rejected God and fully rejected the gospel uh, for the sake of other things, which we'll kind of talk about. All right, the next thing is sexual sin, which he calls sexual immorality in one part, but then a defilement of the flesh in another part. And then in, in reference in Genesis 19 to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, he talked about unnatural desire, which is homosexual sexual sin, a, a particular sexual sin, not worse uh, or better in any way. It's just a sin, another type, type of sexual sin. And remember, relatedly, he's, he's talking about not just the sins themselves, but last week we mentioned this. When, when you twist grace, part of what people do sometimes is they say, hey, if God saves you by grace, this is fine just to do. Just go and sin. It doesn't matter, like, if you're married or not. Just have sex with who you want. If you're committed in your heart, just have sex, you know, or, or any type of sexual sin or perversion, you know, which I think is a really helpful, as you talk about homosexuality too, especially, this, the Bible here, is a prophetic word, not just that it addresses the issue, but it says, there are people in the church here in the first century who are saying, because of grace, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Homosexual, homosexual behavior, it's not talking about the inclination towards same-sex attraction here or anything, or temptation, that's not a sin. The behavior, it's not just the sin, it's saying that in this church, it's okay. God loves you, he saves you by grace, so just go and, and lust after whoever and whomever you want, uh, and, 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 it's, and it's all good. It's a hugely prophetic word for today, because inside the church this is the case too where we can uh, turn a blind eye to this particular issue and, and many others, any type of sexual sin. You say, well, it's just about grace, so let's just not freak out here you know, about, about sin. It's not the point. Grace actually takes sin very seriously. It just promises complete annihilation of it. So either we believe that narrative or we don't. You know, it's like if, if Christ destroys it, live that way and talk that way and teach that way rather than uh, to the contrary. So, but anyway... These people are uh, sexual sin embracers on a variety of levels. Um, this is just a couple, a couple of words for it. They also rely on their dreams, which is to say uh, they, they are false prophets. They trust more in, God gave me a dream last night, and I feel like this is something that I need to say to you, and I know it's a little bit contrary to this, but I really feel like it's from him. It's important of their characteristics as well. Uh, great modern-day example of this would be Joseph Smith, uh, the founder of Mormonism, you know, who... Uh, if you didn't know that, all the Mormon doctrine comes from this guy's supposed dream, a vision that he had uh, himself. And so that would be an example of relying on your dreams, false teacher, right there, that a uh, guy who literally added to this saying, well, this is still good, but here's what's greater, uh, the Book of Mormon. Uh, so that's, that's your new holy book, basically. So, but, but there are smaller versions of that too, you know, where a false teacher, or any Christian can wrestle with this, where we displace the main, the objective, the clear for the minor or the unclear or the, man, I had a dream, it was kind of weird, but, you know, foggy, and it kind of contradicts this, I know, but it really felt like it was from him. Uh, anything like that or any kind of version of that would be a, a 
bad thing that here he labels relying on dreams, not on gospel or objective scripture. Uh, next is, um, I forgot to put up here, but uh, rejecting authority is one as well, which is rejecting church leadership or divine authority. Kind of a both and there, I think. We'll come back to some of that in a little bit, but they just reject different levels of authority and leadership in the church. Um, blasphemy of angels. So, um, now, this is one, I'm guessing, you guys, you guys can probably walk in here this morning and say, I'm really wrestling with blasphemy of angels. Uh, probably, but um, I didn't. It's just, it's weird that it's included. Um, I'll try to address this a little bit, but just understand basically what he's referring to as pride. If this kind of just goes over your head, just understand pride. But um, what it has to do with, it seems, this is why he quotes what he does here when he talks about Michael and the devil and all of that, is speaking against or lowly of angels. So Christians doing this. Questions why? We don't know exactly, but it likely has to do with arrogance over the fact that human beings, or at least Christian human beings, according to some things that are said in the Bible, we are chosen over angels. We're higher uh, than angels. It says in 1 Corinthians something, something, I forget the reference. It says that we will judge angels someday. So uh, Christ became a human, didn't become an angel. He, 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 came, he became what he wanted to die for. There's a specialness about us. We are in the image of God more than angels. And so what's likely going on is that there are some immature believers who are like being exposed to this theology um, about angels related to human beings, and they're getting arrogant over it. And they're talking lowly of angels. Uh, angels, too, who are mediators of the Old Testament law, which is now passed. And so they might think, we're, we're new covenant Christians, so we're just going to kind of slander angels in that regard. And there's, so there's some good theological principles here that people are getting arrogant over which misses the point. If, if our theology makes us arrogant, it's probably bad theology or it's our misunderstanding fully of, of the point of the theology. So, so he actually cites here a, a really cryptic story from an apocryphal or extra-biblical outside-the-Bible work called The Assumption of Moses, uh, where Moses' body is being disputed over between the um, archangel Michael and the, another archangel, uh, Lucifer, who became the devil, uh, it, but so the, there's this dispute happening where Michael does not, he says, rebuke the devil, but says, the Lord rebuke you. So meaning if, if Michael didn't take it upon himself to even rebuke the devil in that moment, but put that on the Lord, how much more should we not rebuke good angels, uh, or, uh, but remain humble? Or, or maybe even demons. I mean, it's, there's a place, of course, to, to rebuke and, and to resist, of course, obviously. Uh, but there might be a nod here, too, as well for making demonology or angelology, the study of angels and demons, central to the faith. Well, there's an arrogance over minors, a centralizing of minor things over major things. That happens all the time. And we all, I, we all have inclination towards that, but it happens in the church all the time. It's written about, blogged about, and now it's just you see it more places because of the glories of social media. Um, glories as in not so, not so glorious, but it's, it's good, but you know what I mean. So it's everywhere. Maximize, or centralizing minors, in this case possibly a nod to demonology over just what the gospel, because the center of the faith is not demons and overcoming demons. The center of the faith is Jesus Christ and him crucified, who overcame demons for us. So there might be a bit of an arrogance here then of, oh, I'm greater than these, or you know, I'm, I'm better than these angels, or all this stuff. And, but the gospel just screams at us, it's not about you. You actually aren't, you and I, we're not greater than them. In some ways, angels are much stronger than us. We're the weak ones who've been chosen in love. 
And that should keep us in our place so that when we do talk about these things, we have the right spirit about which we talk about them. So anyway, at the end of the day, uh, understand just pride here and theological pride uh, is one of the, the marks of these types of people. Uh, next is, uh, hidden. he just says, hidden reefs among the church at your love feasts. Love feasts was a uh, first century phrase or word for church gatherings. So we don't call this our love feast today. Welcome to our love feast. But basically that's what it is. Uh, it, and it's, it, it, it implies that there's love and unity amongst the, the believers who are taking communion. That's the feast. There's communion, there's love and unity, there's uh, a sharing of, of, of words together, there's teaching, and it's a feast. Um, that, that's what's going on. I think that's kind of cool. But anyway, point is, hidden reefs among the church, uh, which is to say they entered in a different way. I talked about that before. Not the gate of Christ, but a different way. They're even taking communions. These people look very Christian, but um, they actually, at their core, because of their beliefs, their doctrine, are not. They're wolf-like. And then he goes on again. All these could be expanded on, but I won't today for the sake of time. But he says they're fruitless. They're twice dead. Not, uh, not sparing punches there. Uh, wandering stars, destined for hell, grumblers, malcontents, loud, loud mouth boasters, and showing favoritism, which I, I, I love the, well, I don't love, because these are really hard things to read, but the, uh, what I love about the sin lists of the Bible is that sometimes you'll have this really big picture stuff like unbelief and pride and, in this case, blaspheming angels, what does that even mean? Uh, relying on dreams, rejecting authority, um, but then you've got things like the bottom where it just says grumblers. You know, it's like, there's a, there's a place in Romans where there's a list where you, you know, um, it depends how moralistically you're thinking and just where your life is taking you and your experiences. But you could actually, you could look at some of these first lists and like check them off and say, feeling pretty good. You know, some of these lists here. And then it gets to the bottom and it says, disobeyers of parents. Like at the bottom, you know, like all this stuff like sexual sin and pride and just rejecting all God all his love. And then the thing at the bottom is, in the same list, is disobeying of parents. You know, in case widespread, like, dough, you know, their kind of thing. Uh, but it's, I just love that. I love that it's sin is big or small. It is mistrust in God. It's centralizing ourselves over God. It's a rejection of his authority, saying we have a better way. Disobeying of parents is not far from disobeying God because they're a godlike figure in our lives, and so it's sin. It's not that different from sexual sin. It's not that different. Both are hell-worthy. That's the hard part about these lists. That I, when I say I love, again, I don't love that. It's bad news, right? But, it's, but I do like, it's helpful. It's good for us, good for our souls to be brought, you know, brought into that. And so that, that's, here's the problem then with the sin list of the Bible. You know, when I all this, these are theological issues that lead to character things or just to, um, or yeah, other, other things, just descriptions there. But um, the problem with uh, sin lists in the Bible like this is, you know, at, and I'll say this as a Christian, um, you know, I, when I read a list like this, for some of the things anyway, you know, I, I look at it and I just say, well, that's, that sounds a lot like me, parts of it anyway. You know, for, and for others of you, it would be the same parts or different parts. Um, you know, not, not the false teacher part. I don't think by God's grace I'm a false teacher, but um, hopefully not. Or you guys should just probably get up and leave. Um, but um, other things, where I look at my life in the past and the present, you know, if, if these are the list I had up there before, if, that's, if those are descriptions of ones who are destined for hell, for judgment, and we're in serious trouble. 
The good news is we're not saved by eradicating those things from our life, but rather by the blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, I, do you believe that? I, I, I don't want to presume that you necessarily do, or maybe you've forgotten. But the gospel here is not eradicate these things from our life. It, the gospel is Jesus bled for them, even for wolves, even for false converts. There's still time for them. The worst of sins. Jesus died a terrible death for terrible sins. So where we go when we see these lists says everything about our spirituality, right? Do you go to the bloody cross or do you go here to, to, to morality? And this is, a good, this is a good time to address your sin for sure. Don't get me wrong. We've got to do that as Christians. But where do you go? Where do you immediately go? To Calvary, to the foot of the bloody cross where Jesus died for all these things, for all of our bad theology as well. In our unbelief, he died for that, and we cling afresh, or do we go um, to behavior modification? If we do the latter, we're no different from any other religion that's ever existed, and we actually kind of falsify. We, we spit in the face of the cross because we say, yeah, God, you did that, but it's just not sufficient. There's another way. There's another way. Pretty good, I'll give you that, but uh, there's another way. We mock it. And um, so that's the good news. And I, and I want to just invite you to believe that afresh and to breathe a collective sigh of relief with me that that's true today. Um, the, the issue here, again, in Jude is that these ungodly people in the church were not just living this way, but teaching others that it's okay to live that way. See how different that is? It's not just this sin exists, but it's people saying, it's okay to sin that way because of grace. It's all right. It's not just God will forgive you. That's true. We said it all the time. But actually, it's okay to be licentious. It's, it's okay to go the full measure of our sin um, into it kind of freshly embraced because God kind of is, is obligated to save you now that you kind of prayed a prayer 20 years ago or something. So the issue here in Jude then is those types of people are teaching that type of grace-twisting doctrine and that they themselves started off with right belief believing aspects of the gospel at least, but then they stopped. They fully disbelieved and rejected grace. They didn't finish the race of faith. That's a special element here that needs to be seen. It's not just the sin. If it is, all of us are wolves. All of us are false teachers. All of us are false converts. If it's just about the sin, because who, who doesn't have sexual sin in their hearts or, their, or acting out with their bodies, right? If it's just about that, but it's not just about that. It's about saying that's okay, one, and then two, promoting that in the church, but then two, um, ourselves not finishing the race of faith. And that's why he weaves in amongst the sin lists all these kind of bullet point stories of people not finishing the race of faith. They started with grace. God alone saves me. And they moved to evil or even to good works to replace Christ. And, and it looked like maybe at times good doctrine that was not. And, but it looked like they were veiled in good works sometimes and talking about things. Or it was just flat out sin. But whatever the case, they went to something else besides the grace of Christ. And so I want to talk about those then for a minute. Um, and that is the list of non-finishers. And so I'll just kind of go through these sort of quick here, especially the first few. And that is first, kind of out of order, he talks about here the the angels first who fell and became demons, so started but didn't finish. 
He talks about Cain, who became a murderer and killed his brother Abel in, in Genesis 4, but he also had contempt for his brother Abel. And remember, whenever you see contempt in the Bible, you see someone that's showing their true colors of their spirituality, which is what? Living by works, not by faith. If you and I have contempt for people, it's, it, it's if you, again, peel back the layers of the curtains of that outward action, what do you see? You see someone who believes that they're something when they're nothing, that they've climbed a ladder that other people are lower on. This is why in Jesus' day, the Pharisees had contempt for people who were sinners because they thought they were something. They thought they had goodness in them. That's why they hated Jesus, because Jesus said the opposite. Contempt is a sign that we live by our works, not by, not by God's grace. We're religious, we're not gospel people. And so Cain then, actually walking in the way of Cain, is not just being murderous with our thoughts and actions, it's shifting from faith to works. Third uh, is the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, who, as it says in, in, um, in verse 7, who serve as an example uh, to us, meaning that when God destroyed the city, the, the story of this is back in Genesis 19, he destroyed the city uh, due to its sin. It was an example of future judgment, but also an example of future escape and salvation because Lot's family was saved from the fire. If you don't know the story, not everyone dies. God makes a way of escape for some. Remember, again, it's by grace. Are they good people? Never says they're righteous by what they do. It, it's, they're, they're not good people. But they're strangely saved and passed over and allowed a way to escape. They're, they're saved by grace, not by their own inherent sense of righteousness. It's, it's our story. This is our story. Just from a New Testament perspective, we understand this on a greater scope. One non-finisher, though, and this is alluded to, suggested here, but it's more clear elsewhere in the Bible. A non-finisher was Lot's wife, who, uh, if, if you uh, remember the story, she was saved from the city. In, in the act of running away from the burning uh, hail of fire that's raining down in the city, in, in, on her way to the hills for refuge, an angel said to all of them, don't look back. But she looked back and she instantly died and turned into a pillar of salt. So Jesus says here in his ministry, one of his lessons is remember Lot's wife. It's one of the big, big uh, lessons from the story. Is remember the one that looked back and turned back and didn't finish. Remember one who started their, their, to be saved, that she left the city, but then wanted to go back because she loved her past life. She loved the city of sin. And so, she, and so she's an example of one who, because she didn't finish, actually, it's like she never really started. Uh, Balaam here as well, a story of a guy who moved from truth to a lie, a prophet, loved the word of God, but then exchanged it for sensuality and selfish gain from Numbers 22 to 24. I won't read that today. The biggest one, though, is uh, Israel. Uh, Israel's story post-Exodus. Th this is uh, by far the most talked about example of not finishing in the New Testament. And it's something, if you're a Christian, you should be privy to because of how much it comes up and how much it's a warning for us to not be like them. And so in verse 5, uh, to catch us up here, what, again, what he says, remind us, he says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, so referring to the Old Testament exodus of Israel, out of Egypt, afterward, he destroyed those who did not believe. In Hebrews 3.19, it says the same thing, referring to the same story. They did not enter Israel, did not enter the promised land, 
because of their unbelief. So what the, the New Testament does then is it correlates uh, the exodus of Israel and our exodus from sin and death. And so in the Old Testament, Israel exoduses out of Egypt. They wander in the desert for 40 years. The first generation of Israelites all die here, not entering the promised land because they disbelieve God. They disbelieve in his goodness. They stop trusting in his grace. They disbelieve the gospel. They stop believing the gospel. So they never get here. Only a couple do, like Caleb and Joshua, who keep believing. But the whole first generation of Israel die. It's the second generation that gets into the promise. Even Moses dies here. The second generation uh, is the one that gets in. So the New Testament, picking up on this motif, says that's our story. There's a new exodus that happens now through Christ. And we have our own exodus. We've escaped from sin and death. He's died for our sins. And now we're right here in our own desert-wandering church age. And we await his arrival, the, the full entrance to the true promised land. It's coming. So the, the lesson is, like Israel was saved, but then did not persevere, so do some Christians experience Christ and kind of taste salvation, but not finish. They don't continue in belief, because unbelief is always the issue. They don't keep believing the gospel. As Jude in Hebrew says, the issue is unbelief. And so it happened with Israel, and it's happening for Christians now in the New Testament. They're abandoning their first love. Grumblers here as well is actually a nod to, and malcontents, a nod to Israel as well during that same time frame when after the Exodus, they grumble at their circumstance and even want to go back to Egypt. Some of you guys know this story. They even want to go back. Uh, Exodus 16 says, in the desert, the whole community grumbled, and there is judgment. And Korah's rebellion is another one of these stories I won't read, but just to reference it, in number 16 was a, a widespread kind of corporate grumbling at Moses. And, and they said, who's this guy? Why is he leading? I can lead. And they grumbled at him, and in the authority and leadership God appointed uh, for that church, and they were judged uh, for it. So, um, so grumbling then is a, it's a dissatisfaction with salvation. It's, it's, uh, it's being a malcontent. Um, Philippians 2 talks about this as well for the Christian life. It says we, to not grumble because to grumble is to be like faithless Israel. Uh, it, it's to not be satisfied with Jesus alone. It's to say I'm not happy with the heavenly and immeasurable and infinite riches of grace that's been like dumped on me at the foot of the cross. Like, that's not enough. And uh, so that's, that's the warning. It's uh, all these things, but with Israel in mind especially, is to not grumble, to keep believing the gospel of grace and to not grumble in circumstance or with what the essence of the gospel is. You know? And grumbling's a, a sin Jesus died for, right? So it's not saying if we grumble, we're out. It's saying bring it to Christ. It's those who have hardened themselves too much, who've harbored the sin of grumbling too much and they stop taking it to him. And then where else are we going to go if, if we don't have the blood of Christ to cover grumbling? That's where they've taken it. So um, Jesus dies for grumbling, but it's people that stop taking it to him and harbor it too much where their whole heart becomes one big grumbling factory and they're never happy with salvation. And so they fully leave it. Actually, one additional story is, you guys remember the, the point in that story when Israel's in the desert and God gives manna? or the bread from heaven. 
So at one point, God every day actually gives bread from the dew of the earth, and they can eat every day. And it's a miraculous thing. It's sufficient. They can cook all kinds of things with it. It's, it's an amazing thing. And it's, it's for this time in between Egypt and the, and the promised land. But at one point, Israel complains. They, there's this uprising, and they say, we want quail. Remember that, where they want meat? They just want a hamburger, you know? And it's like, it's, it, they, but, or, yeah, a quail burger. I don't know what the, what the uh, thing is would be there, but be different. Um, but they, uh, they, they, they complain, and there's judgment. Uh, God, uh, and I won't go into that whole story, but they complain at the manna. And if you think, you know, you think about, you look in the New Testament, what does Jesus call himself in John 6 when he talks about himself? Do you remember? He calls himself the bread from heaven. He calls himself the new manna. Because we are in the desert now, and we are being fed by God. The new food is Jesus' body and what he does for us on the cross. That's, the, that's how we're nourished. And so, do you understand here the, the, how we can grumble at the same thing? We can just grumble at the new manna. So how does this play out? You know, do, do you ever think, uh, when you're here somewhere else, a different church, do you ever think, seriously, the gospel again? Are you kidding? I'm ready to move on. I'm bored with it. It sounds exactly like Israel in the desert. Manna again? Boring. I want pigeon. How are we not unlike Israel if we get bored with the gospel? How will the same result not, be, not befall us? These stories are connected. If you want more than the gospel, how are you not unlike Israel, wanting more than the manna? Do you see? This is true for, this is true for all of us. We cannot go past it. We cannot want more than it. it will, if, if, we take, if we harbor that too much, if we take that in, if that becomes our heart, we don't have Christ anymore. You know, we'll die in the desert. We won't enter the promised land. We won't finish the, the race of faith. The gospel is the true manna, and it is enough. It is sufficient. It will always be there. It will always nourish you. What false teachers will say is, not enough. Good, but not quite enough. What you also need is this. And in, in the chorus of voices that come from the past, like Israel's, you can almost hear it say, we want quail, we want quail. And so their story becomes ours. So the New Testament application here then for Christians is, you know, Judah's not just saying here sinners. He, he's saying sinners who used to believe but now don't. And uh, 2 Peter 2.22 says what the true proverb says has happened to them. And, and it's, if you didn't, we're here last week, Second Peter and Jude are kind of the same book, so it's the same context. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. The lesson is, don't be like people who start saved, saved, sort of, but not really, but start that way, taste salvation, but then show their true colors by not continuing in God's salvation. 2 Peter 1.9 says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Spiritual nearsightedness means looking too much at the self and forgetting the big picture, which is Christ. So don't be blind to the gospel. Don't be so nearsighted that, that we miss the big picture. 
So here, here's where I think this exhortation and admonishment gets its sharpest. Uh, this is from a couple of notes I read in preparation for the sermon. Uh, not my words, but, um, but really good. He said, uh, there will be those participating in the spiritual communities of heaven, speaking of angels, and earth, the church, who are going to hell. A cursory connection to God's people is no guaranteed refuge from the punishment of sin. A cursory connection to God's people is no guaranteed refuge from the punishment of sin. Matthew 7, uh, Jesus says, uh, speaking of the final day when he returns and, and judges and brings salvation to all his people, he says, on that, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I think this is, uh, for me, it's one of the scariest passages in the entire Bible uh, because I'm a Christian and um, it should be probably for you too, but um, I, don't, I was going to say should be. I don't know if it should be or not, but um, it probably is. But I, I think it's also one of the most encouraging simultaneously. What, what I mean by that is this. It's the scariest because this is saying many people who look Christian will be shown as, they, as, shown as not that on the last day. Many people who do lots of good things, miraculous things, things in Jesus' name, will be declared people that Jesus never knew. Not, I started to know you, but then forgot about you. I never knew you at any point, at any point. I never knew you. So that's scary, right? That's a gut check. It's a heart check. But the good news on that, on the other side of that coin, is that, well, what does it mean then to be saved, right? What's this guy's posture, these people's posture before God on the last day? What's their posture? What are they saying? Look what I've done. If, if that's what you're bringing to God on the last day, this is the hope you have, which is no hope at all. God's not interested in, in your dusty, imperfect, good works that have kind of come from you. He's, he's not, that's, that's not what he's, he wants to know you. Isn't that better news? He wants to know you, and he, and he wants you to know, truly know God, which is, I mean, man, if someone just brought you a gospel that started with that, would you just buy in? Like, here, I've got something that if you believe this, you can truly, truly know the God of the universe. Like, dude, I'm in, you know? There's more to the gospel than that, but I mean, that's just, that's amazing. That should be enough. But the, the good news is then that it's just that, that it's not, here's what I've done, it's, it's knowing, right? And, and knowing only comes through belief and faith, and knowing God on his terms which is his son. You know, Jesus says, I'm the revelation of God. When you know me, you know the Father. So knowing Christ and knowing what he does for us, that's how we're saved. Not by, not by moral effort. Even good things. Good things keep people away from God just as much as bad things. They're no better in one sense. In an ultimate sense. They don't, they don't get you any closer. You know, our pride and arrogance and self-righteousness and religiosity I mean, that's what's going on here, you know? They, so the, the answer is Christ. It's not works. So here's a related thought then um, that unpacks this. It, it's, I think it's r really easy to look Christian and hide underneath a costume of good works 
while not being captivated by Jesus Christ and then crucified at the same time. It's really easy to do. Is Christianity for you behavior or is it a person? What if Jesus returns to earth in the next few minutes? Will you rejoice? Does that, does that thought just excite you? Or as a Christian, do you fear it because you're living more by works than, than faith and grace? Will you rejoice or will you be ashamed? Will you know him? Will he truly know you? Do you know, do you talk to him? Has, he, has the gospel reality of giving us a relationship with God now through his son, we were enemies, now we're friends, is that a reality? So you actually talk to him now? So he comes back, you're, it's like you're welcoming home a friend, a, a dear friend? Or is there fear? Fear comes from works because, you know, we don't think we've done enough yet, so we don't want him to come back, right? If we live by works, we're like, I haven't done enough. I don't want him to come back. By grace, we want to see him. So will you rejoice at his coming or will you be ashamed? Uh, or, or will all you have, you know, be a bag of imperfect, impersonal good works, void of any connection to the person of Jesus Christ? We are Jesus people, right? We're, we're his children, not employees. He does not bring us a way of life, we believe, but we believe he brought us himself so that he says, this is not the way over here, but I am the way, the truth, and the life. We believe that we are the died-for ones. We believe that we know God on an intimate level, that we've seen him die uh, in our hearts for us. We've, we've read this. We've heard God's voice in it. And it's become our song and our mantra where God spreads his, bloody, his bloodied arms wide and said, this is how much I love you. Dying in that way among criminals. And we haven't spit at it. True Christians look, have not looked at it and said, though we've sinned and haven't fully grasped it, we've looked at it. True Christian says, I look at that and I say, I'm not going to spit on it by adding to it. I'm not going to say that's good but not great. It's great. It's enough. It's sufficient. So we're actually Jesus people here, right? It's just really easy to, to look Christian and hide underneath a costume of good works. It's so easy to do that. You know, but what really reveals the heart is, what if you were to come back now? What would you think? You know, um, Without pressing that too far, it's like if it's not elation and safety, you know, if, that's not a, if that's not a safe thought for you, what does that say about your gospel? Is it a safe thought? That's a, it's, the safest thought in the world should be, Jesus is coming back to get me because of where you stand before him, not based on your works, but because of his love. It should be a safe thought. But if it's not, and it's okay if it's not perfectly, right? none of the perfect theology there. It's the point isn't perfect, perfection, but if it's not at all, you know, we've got to check our heart, check our gospel. What do we believe about Jesus here? Um, are, we, are we replacing him with good works or with sin-embracing licentiousness or anything else? Or is he enough? So what do we do in the face of this sobering news? Next week we'll see a lot more when the letter closes. Uh, but a few things for today is a bit of a teaser, I guess, to that is uh, right from this passage, in, in verse 5, you see the fact, actually 5 verse A. <laughs> it's got to cut the verse up a bit, but um, it, 5 verse A, it says that, I want to remind you that Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. I want to remind you, I want to remind myself of that right now and remind you guys of that. It's writing this to Christians. I want to remind you, Jesus actually does save people out of the land of Egypt. He does it. 
And so uh, he's the answer, right? I mean, all these people weren't from good to bad. They were from Jesus to bad or Jesus to good news or sorry, good works. Um, like we talked about before, it's not just a, a behavior modification. It's moving from Christ to something else, whether it's goodness or badness, from belief to disbelief. So the issue is him, but rejoice in this. Remember, he died for all the stuff we're talking about. If anything concerns you here, you know, be encouraged. Jesus died for it. It's, it's, it's not sort of oh, this stuff over your past sins and there's this other stuff that he can't cover. Like, it's enough. It's, uh, it was a terrible death for terrible sins. He died. I'll always remember that. Run back to Christ. That's what we do in the face of this sobering. And we help others unto that as well. And that's actually... This last piece here in, in Hebrews 3, part of the answer is just that community. But in Hebrews 3, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But then here, he goes, but, to the, to the, to the, uh, to the uh, remedy, right? Or he says, this is what you should do instead. Which, if you don't know the rest of the passage, you might think, well, I, I don't know what's, you know what's said there. You might think of some other things that would be good things. But, but what do you think he says? What happens? What are you supposed to do? Like some of you know the answer. He says, this is what you do. Exhort one another every day. Christian community and not falling away from the gospel are inextricably connected. How do you stay in the faith? You meet with other Christians who love Jesus and who love you. That is the biblical answer. You cannot stay in the faith without church. You cannot run the race without Christian community. You cannot run the race of faith. You cannot avoid heretical teachings. You cannot have the right antennas up for all the false teachers that will knock on your door throughout your life alone. But you can with help. You can with pastors who love you and Christian brothers and sisters and community group leaders and peers who love you and who are strong when you are weak. And you can be strong for them when they are weak. But this is how you do it. The Jesus in them is how you get there. Be, but exhort one another, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. For we have come to share in Christ if we do a lot of good works. No, it doesn't say that, does it? We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original faith, our confidence in the gospel to the end. It's not about morality here. You could have said anything right there. Our past conversion is true based on how much we continue in the gospel in the present and the future. Belief is the core issue. That's the whole context here, remember. Israel didn't believe. They failed to keep in the faith. They disbelieved. It's our story. We have to keep believing the gospel. That is the core issue. It does not say here we've come to share in Christ if we start to get our life together and do good deeds. Because it's not true. You could do that till the cows come home. And you could be just as close to hell as, as you were before. If you're not in Christ and holding firm to the gospel of grace. See how that's the answer? Hold fast your, your firm confidence in the faith. Confidence in Jesus' sufficiency. Firm to the end. Do it in community, do it tirelessly, and help others under that same end. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace today uh, in a hard passage, uh, a passage full of warnings, which we certainly get uh, many times in the Bible. This is one of them. 
But thank you that you love us so much that you would warn us. Um, hate would be if you didn't warn us. Uh, but love says, uh, I'm warning you clearly that this will happen in churches and out just in the culture at large. There will be false teachers and false doctrines and things that will sound right but actually be wrong at the core. And, and the gospel is enough. Um, whether it's goodness or evil, things can just lead us away and astray. And, and so I, we just pray God for help in that as a church, uh, to know the Bible well, to know the scriptures well, and uh, to just know it well enough to know what it isn't as well, know, know what contradicts it, um, and refute those things for our own hearts and our brothers and sisters in the faith as well. So, um, God, thank you that you saved a people out of Egypt. You are saving people out of spiritual Egypt right now, sin and death. That's true. Help us to cling to you with all we've got. Christ's name, amen.